Namo tassa bhagavato rahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato rahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato rahato samma sambuddhasa Uddang dhammang sangang namasami Sometimes the process of liberation is... Uh, Called, uh, we, we use the term transcendence, transcending uh, particular habits or drives or feelings, and they're just important to recognise trend. You know what, what what transcendence is or what what it does, and it's uh, so you 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 meet something, you include it, and you get bigger than it. You meet. You know, feeling. You know that feeling. You don't try and know, uh, you know, mess with that feeling. You don't, um, you know, add a lot of approval, disapproval to that feeling. You just meet the feeling as a feeling, and and that when there is a possibility of a clear, steady meeting, you know, when it really is not just reacting, falling into it or running away from it, then the mind kind of opens, gets bigger, the space gets bigger, and you feel a sense of freedom around that feeling. You you don't have to engage with it. It doesn't get you. It doesn't pin you. Mm. So so the transcendence both includes the feeling and goes big, it's bigger than that. And the feeling will tend... If it's not fed upon, if it's not actually put energy into it, then these feelings tend to subside. These mental ones do. Mental and uh, emotions, perceptions, moods, things that drive us, things that cause us uh, kinds of agitation. You know? So we meet that and you get bigger than that. So you and uh, in our practice, it really, as we cultivate the mind one theme is that you pay attention you give you know you've set up mindfulness which is actually a little more than paying attention but it's a, it's a very ample form of attention you set up mindfulness and then you meet sensations in your body feelings in your mind moods impressions as they happen you know um, and then you you get bigger than them. You, know, you step back from them, you, and they they tend to, you know, pass or fade or lose their intensity. So there's an increasing sense of of spaciousness and lightness and freedom from pressure. You know, pressure that normally mental phenomena generate for us because busy, agitated, we're kind of thrown around by them or pushed along by them or frozen by them or pinned down by them or thrown up in the air by them. <laughs> you know, so that's a, there's a pressure there. We get we get going, you know, and we get in some sense of lightness and space. So but this is really not through suppressing these ultimately, though we may have to temporarily suppress some just to be able to get enough space to be able to attend properly. If your mind is just too flooded and full of things and it's difficult to really deal with anything skillfully 
So you clear the desktop, you have one or two items, particularly, you know, the items that seem to be most important or most significant, you know, running at this particular time, one's, you know, painful memory or a particular habit of mind, an addiction of some kind of compulsion, fault-finding or blaming oneself or whatever it is, these kind of mental phenomena. Just let's get some space around that and what's happening there. And so this way you start to liberate through meeting, paying, you know, bringing up mindfulness, meeting, and then transcending or including, you know, and getting bigger than that. Mm-hmm. This is a so this is an ongoing process. In a way, as the Buddha says, you you, you can't. You can't be liberated unless you have experienced the results of karma. You know, to, you know, there is the the net results. You know, not not you don't have to relive a reaction, but the net results of the things that are resi- residing in you, the things where you're still snagged or carrying or weighed down or pushed around by. Obviously, it makes sense, doesn't it? You can't be liberated unless somehow you've resolved that. The regret, the nostalgia, the craving, the um, the bitterness or whatever it is. Mm. And sometimes just the kind of habitual negative sense of oneself. You know, well, I'm not very good, I do this, you know. Self-view has got a certain, is a residue, you know, is a res- you know, results of the way we've been, you know, the particular qualities of it, the way we've regarded ourselves, because even regarding yourself is a kind of karma, kind of action. Forming opinions, measuring and contrasting is definitely an action of the mind. Setting up ideals and ambitions is an action of the mind. And then being disappointed when you don't meet them is another action of the mind. <laughs> you know? So, you know, we had to resolve this, you know, and the residues of that feeling of inadequacy or disappointment or regret, you know. And if the mind is relieved from this kind of weight, then there's a huge amount more space and a huge amount more energy and more clarity with which we can, we do suddenly find we're, hey, you know, suddenly... Who I was yesterday isn't isn't true, isn't real. You know, you can actually be free from the past, and uh, you have a lot more potential. You know, to carry around a self-image that's uh, past its sell-by date twenty years ago. You know, so it's transcendence. You don't. It's not through repressing it or or just kind of trying to tidy it all up or you know, explain it, but actually meeting it, the feeling of it, the energy of it, the potency of it, and then, you know, sort of, sort of through the qualities of mindfulness and, and concentration or samadhi and the developments of the mind that occur through that, you get bigger than that. You find there's a kind of space and ability to witness and not be moved by those and to have kind of finished with the emotional currents so we get wider and bigger 
So it's actually it's a progressive pattern because there's you know you can be pretty clear about on some elements you feel really really spacious and no issues there and suddenly very tight around other topics you know very very tight very compulsive so when we get kind of a bit spacious about you know sense desires or something it doesn't really get me or particular elements of sense desires don't get me you know food or sex or something doesn't really then you know you think well that's just sorted all my business but you may still have a lot of stuff going when it comes around to being in control of things (laughs) you know or being blamed these kinds of things which can really get us wired up the way we feel ourselves with other people or the way we estimate ourselves so you actually want to keep Acknowledging, you know, the places where one's stuck as just a place, not as a self, but as just a piece of territory. It's rather like you've got a an angiogram, or a, you know, you, you put so you can just trace where the stress in your system is. So oh, there's tightness here. There's, so you know, then this is a kind of skillful way of of using your intelligence to really see where where you need to bring more mindfulness, more enlightenment factors to bear. Well, the transcendence really is a matter of these bringing, you know, you have to catalyze these, what are called enlightenment factors, mindfulness, investigation, effort, uh, a quality of uplift and, and ease, which gives you the sense of confidence, you know, a sense of, of the transcendence, not just being an intellectual matter, whereby you can kind of get it in perspective, but also you also it's an it's a emotional matter where you actually feel a sense of real, um, you know, uplift and happiness in yourself. Yeah. And then you, you start to, the, this is the way the transcendent expresses itself, is plain. And with that, then the, the, the mind then in a way shifts from the particular problem we're having the particular place where we're stuck into the qualities of the unstuck place, the place where we feel free it sort of shifts and and samadhi concentration and equanimity are the results of that your mind becomes one pointed in that and you feel peaceful, equanimous spacious These these are transcendent factors they're not they're not a nibbana or the unconditioned, but they are they are the kind of um, working agents that work upon the places where we're stuck. So we become more equanimous. We're able to stand firm. We're able to step back. We're able to feel okay with ourselves. And then these these difficult residues, these pieces of our program, pieces of our history lose their bite, and they lose their bite, they start to kind of wither and fall away. And that's interesting because it's not really a matter of of chopping them off, but actually it's called like starving. You know, the images of starving. You don't keep feeding something. You doesn't keep feeding the festering, uh, you know, passion or the festering lust or the festering resentment or the festering self-doubt, it just says, enough, you know, enough, been there, enough of that, and it doesn't, you don't keep feeding it with more 
input, more agitation, more stories, more if-onlys, all that kind of thing. You know, so and this is the way we, we stop building ourselves up in terms of our history. So it's also a sense of freedom from the, the, the who we've been, you know, who we assume ourselves to be. Which in the, and for this purpose, you know, the, the Buddha talked to these what are called five kanda, or five aggregates, or five bundles, which represents particular <coughs> behaviors or, or, or the way the mind operates, around which our sense of self gets 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 wound up with that. Mm. Now you know transcendence is actually uh, it's, it's a it's a natural mode of the mind. It's something we we do. We do get bigger all the time. Well, not all the time, but there is a sense in which most people get get their minds get wider and bigger and broader from you know when they were six months old until they're until they're twenty or so. Sometimes it stops there. <laughs> You just get to a certain certain level, a socially acceptable level, and then you keep gr- going along. It doesn't get any bigger, you know. But for example, when you're, six, you're two years old, you can't be expected to have compassion and concern for your parents, and and take your time over eating. If you just scream and howl any time of the day or night, doesn't matter whether your parents are tired, had enough, whatever. That's not. It doesn't. It doesn't compute. You don't. You don't. You can't take that on. You, so you're completely selfish. As you get older, you start to think, well, maybe I'll wait a minute because, uh, you know, perhaps it's not the right time. You start to get a bigger sense. You're not completely the, your, your inclinations and desires. And, and you, actually you can get bigger and bigger where you start to, to compassion and moral conscience for other your relatives, your friends, and even human beings you don't know. And then any sentient being you know, you start to think, well, I don't, I don't want to kill animals. Actually, I don't want to eat their meat because somehow that you start to put it all together. That means they'll experience fear, they'll experience panic, they'll experience being slaughtered. Ooh, I don't want to be part of that. You know, you suddenly you you take on. You're able to to rather. Oh, I feel hungry. And it looks like a nice bit of steak there. <laughs> you know, you get bigger than that. <laughs> Yeah. But you can also, also we can understand the uh, th- that way of looking at things. You yeah. so can understand the kind of uh, uh, lust and passion that can occur around, you know, eating animals or eating meat and things like that. Tastes nice. Everybody does it. Good for you. Things. It's kind of like, so you can understand that, but at the same time, you can get. Beyond that, when you think, you consider, you're able to tune into the, to the conditions and the causes that make the brought that around. So your mind can develop this kind of wisdom and morality sense. You know, if you just keep encouraging it to 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 bear something in mind, to be mindful, to look into cause and effect, to look into things like, well, how good is a feeling anyway? You know, so you have a few moments of happiness. Is that worth? Some you know some creature losing its life, <laughs> so that we can have this momentary feeling of nice taste. I think, well, no, nice tastes are nice, but I don't think it's worth killing something for, you know. 
It's good to consider if you're going to eat something's body, would you prepare to go and kill it? Because mm. that's what's happened. Mm. So, you know, we, we can have the moral sense and then the, the wisdom sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you see something very lovely about human beings because they can develop with animals can't. Other animals can't do that. They've just got to be the passion of the moment. They're like two-year-olds all their life. <laughs> so I was in uh, Sri Lanka and I went to this uh, turtle sanctuary. This guy spent his life devoted to turtles, marine turtles. See, they understand a lot of the animals in the planet are threatened with extinction. Of course, marine turtles, about five or six species of marine turtles. And many of them are in the waters around Sri Lanka. And of course, their, their, their habitat is threatened by fishing and by you know, uh, um, pollution and by all the kinds of things that threaten creatures' lives. So he's decided he'd dedicate his life to marine turtles. And he goes and has a little team of volunteers and they, they dig up their eggs from the beach and then take them to a hatchery so that if they were just left on the beach, then other animals would dig them up and eat them or people might dig them up and eat them. So he'd take the eggs into a hatchery and they hatch them at least thousands of little turtles, and then he keeps them a couple of months and then lets them out into the sea. And he reckons that a greater proportion survive that way than if they were just left in their own. So he's actually, you know, doing a bit of mothering on these turtles. And what really struck me was, he said, when the tsunami hit this part of Sri Lanka, you know, so this enormous, however high, wall of water just crashing in, First, he just grabbed his two favorite turtles and ran. <laughs> you know, so I guess he only had two arms because they're quite big. He would love to have taken them all, but he can only, he can only manage two. And you think, that's interesting, that very reflex, the first reflex is, you know, for myself, but also for these other creatures. They wouldn't have grabbed him, I'm sure. <laughs> so I think the human beings are the ones who can do that. We can actually look after ourselves, but also widen to look after other creatures. And I think that's really, to me, that's a very beautiful thing that that we can all do, and we all do. You know, I was talking to one of our lay supporters, and she said, you know, she had a couple of kids, and these kids, she said, you know, they know just how far they can drive me to the edge want just about to slaughter them <laughs> they get me to that point just they just know exactly how far to push it you know and I just about managed to hold it you know and she said and I said oh it must be really difficult said, oh no it's a joy <laughs> having children I said well, what I said, I said oh you know I, I absolutely I'll, I'll give my life for them I mean, there's no question about that you know Something is so, you know, wow. So, so take you to the edge of irritation and murder, and yet you'd happily give your life. That's, that's wow. So there wouldn't be a question about it. 
There'll be no question. So this is just that kind of, you know, human beings that are built this way. We, we, we do this. We can do it. We can, you know, give up something of ourselves, the welfare of others, and program to do it. And I guess, you know, uh, you know the, the whole kind of, from the mother then, you know, we're dedicating this evening to somebody's mother. It's good to recognize, you know, what mothers do. You know, the amount of pain and misery they happily take on. <laughs> we wouldn't have been here, you know. Just, uh, you know, extreme pain of, of giving birth and the kind of endless drudgery and misery and worry. And yet take all that on, because we've got something there just kind of opens up and is bigger than that. And maybe that's part of the beauty of it, is to recognize one is both feeling the pain and the, and the anguish and also bigger than it. You, that's what you include and you transcend. And something in that means we're not denying the specific or saying it's other than it is, and yet we're also bigger than that. Transcend, include, transcend. You know? It's like people do hospice work. You recognize that the people are dying, you know, there's no way out, and yet you don't dismiss. You include that, and you get bigger than that, and you're not worried, and you're not agitated, and not miserable, and yet you recognize and you do everything you can to prevent something happening that you know is happening, but without agitation or disappointment. It's, it's, it's compassion, isn't it? Morality and compassion are, are where we're bigger. It's to recognize that we can do this, and sometimes we choose to do it, and sometimes we just really lose touch with it. You know, that, that transcendence is not, is a conditioned thing. You know, sometimes we just don't do it or we get really snappy and snarly and tight and I'm not going to let go of this, you know. Uh, and these are the places where we need the real um, support and help of these enlightenment factors. And we can't, just doesn't happen by itself. And so this is really, with these enlightenment factors, work upon these, these five kanda which are very much uh, not the level of our conscious, you know, activity, but almost the level of our inner reflexes. You know, the way that our mind assembles reality, the way that our, it's the kind of programs, the way that the, and the process, the way which our mind assembles what we call the real world. <laughs> There's some kind of form, an object, and there's consciousness. Those are two of them. You know, there's an awareness of that. It comes into presence. And the most amazing thing, isn't it, really, that something that we both know is outside us, seemingly. You know, it's a thing. It comes and goes. I can see it. It's out there. And yet, it can get internalized. I think, oh, that's George, or that's a car, or that's... Something it becomes an internal thing. I get feelings around and perceptions and meanings, and it, go, it comes inside. You know, there's you know, there's consciousness. It makes something present for us. It brings kind of intimacy. You know, it includes things. 
And that's really amazing, isn't it? That all the time this is happening. Through, so what the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue. And all the time, these organs, you know, are actually generating internal impressions of feeling, of meaning, of response, of reaction, liking, disliking, through the mind. And they're they're doing that because they tap into something called mind consciousness. So, consciousness involves perceptions, which means we we get the meaning of something, how it strikes us, we interpret. In all kinds of ways, we interpret what a thing is, we interpret what it means to us, it's pleasant, whether it's agreeable or disagreeable, whether it's strange, whether it's friendly, whether it's big, small, you know, we make, that's all those perceptions. You know, the ways we describe something, we get a feeling for it, which is a particular impulse of agreeable or disagreeable, it's a kind of reaction. And then we get some sense of what I'm going to do about that. It could be just notice it and so what? Or it could be something that goes, well, what's that? I'm really going to get involved with that or run away from it or do something with it, you know, internally. So these are perceptions, feelings, then these activities. A lot of these activities, or, or called sankhara, are about particular, uh, they, have a, they have an impulse, a volition, a push. Do that, do this, ignore it, get hold of it, think about it, stay with it. Um, you know, and then all kinds of complexities around that, like blame somebody for it, you know, or store it away and brood over it, or um, deny that it happened, <laughs> you know, push it away, forget about it. You know, so these are these kind of volitional twitches that are happening all the time. You know, space out, go somewhere else. You know, disagreeable, shun it, avoid it. So these are these kind of volitional drives that are going. And this, this is the way that our experience is happening. Because of that volitional drive, we choose to attend, give attention to one thing and not to another thing. We act in skillful or unskillful ways. And this is, you, you know, so you've got these five, you've got the form, the consciousness, perceptions, feelings, and sankharas or volitions, activities. This is, if you like, the basic inner, um, what would you call it? <coughs> Software. You know, okay, if you like it to a computer, you know, you get a computer and it's got, it's got 60 gigabytes on it, but 35 of those gigabytes are taken up with, with running the system, the operating system. Well, that's like us, you know. We've got 35 gigabytes of our system, of our awareness is just taken up with operating systems. These operating systems are the five aggregates. You know, so something is experienced as having a, a resistance impression or a heat impression or a fluidity impression or a movement impression. Yeah, so these are called elements, and these are what constitute form. Yeah. So we, we apprehend form through particular pieces of our, of our mental behavior, our mental programming. So, that's, and that's, so this is where, of course, you get, where it gets very solid, because that's exactly what it's supposed to do. 
It's supposed to make the, the real world real. <laughs> Solid. But as you, as you recognize, the real world sort of keeps changing all the time. So all the time we're, we're continuing readjusting our programs. So you've got a particular sankara, it's just about checking out and readjusting all the others. You know, yesterday's enemy is today's friend, yesterday's peril is, is now a past, uh, uh, today's fashion is, is this, and yesterday's was like that, you know. So we're continually kind of adjusting that. You've got something there that keeps doing that all the time. It gets, it gets very dense and very busy. It takes up a huge amount of, of space. Isn't it? You know, half your disc, if you like. <laughs> Perhaps all of it. Mm-hmm. But there's a, there's a little bit left, which the Buddha called the unprogrammed, or the unconditioned. Yeah. And you really... Um, through including and transcending the five kanda, then you there is a realization of the unconditional, unprogrammed. So you include it, transcend it. it means you know it for what it is. You you see it. You specifically are with it. You can you you know the good and the bad of that. You know the happiness and the unhappiness of it. You know the conviction of it. But you're also bigger than that. And that's that's practice, isn't it? Getting, recognizing that we don't have to be in the real world, the so-called real world. There's a world that's even more real because it doesn't keep shifting and changing. <laughs> you don't have to keep adjusting. You don't have to keep watching it break down, which is what the real world's always doing. Have you noticed? It's just crisis after another, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Wars and economies and, you know, the so-called real world. It's just totally unstable. So we can get more real than the real world. Through, and it's not through, you know, it's through beginning operating on, on, these, on these aggregates. Where we find that space. We find that... Uh, that quality, that transcendent, ultimately transcendent. You have to work on it, of course, because these. This is where you need the the qualities of um, mindfulness. Is is the doorway to the transcendent? Because it's it's more than attention. Attention, you know. The Buddha said there's certain things you shouldn't attend to. If it, you attend to something, you just get mesmerized. So attention, we hypnotize attention. You just get mesmerized by something. You focus on it, certainly attending to it, but you're captured. Mindfulness is, a, is an attention that is not captured. It's not what occurs, you might say, with mindfulness. is When we normally just attend to something, some kind of volition, some kind of impulse starts going. Like, oh, that's a really nice sweater she's got. I wouldn't mind one of those. That's really interesting, you know. Or something like that. You know, get little like that. Or what a hideous sweater she's wearing. How yuck, you know. Who does she think she is coming in here with that ghastly sweater on? It's totally inappropriate. <laughs> you know, something gets going, you know. So that that's the sankara. 
forms of view and opinions, particularly energy. And we get buzzy around that, you know. Somebody comes into the kitchen, you know, with some food, and you put some food down. What can you do with that? You know, you get going on it. So we form, so that's, that's attention does that. With mindfulness, it, it, instead of that reaction of a, of a sankara, of a, of a piece of volition coming in, it stops, it doesn't do that. You know, so you, you, it kind of goes deeper than that reflex. So it just goes to being conscious. So there's presence of mind, but there isn't that running on. And that's the where, that's the pass mark, you might say. If you're, wit- if you're witnessing something, you're getting hypnotized and excited or disappointed, then you're not really being mindful. Now, this isn't something to be, you know, going blaming about. It's just to recognize, say, okay, pull out of that one. Or look at it in a particular way. Review it as changeable. Review it as having very little satisfaction in it. Reviewing it as, no, as not really going to make your life any bigger or better one way or another. You know, so you look, you kind of bring some wisdom in. Or you bring firmness in. The samadhi factor, which is, means you think, I don't want to be moving around this. Just find where I am, be present. And you establish that samadhi that sense of firmness, which is the mind gathering into its own, into itself, gathering into its own energy, and not spinning out. And these are, so mindfulness is, is often seen as a, a contributed and supported by both wisdom and by concentration or firmness of mind. And that's how it works, isn't it? You know, you investigate, you, there's mindfulness, you start to investigate and put energy into practice and get the mind gets firm. It doesn't keep generating all these sankharas, all these volitional elements, all these opinions and views. Mm-hmm. And this is where we start to really deprogram our minds from this busy stuff. Mm-hmm. That's why the Buddha taught these. It, brought up these because you can you can see how it happens you know it's very much it's not just a piece of interesting philosophy or not very interesting philosophy it's even worse Um, but (laughs) but actually (laughs) boring philosophy a practical guide because you can experience the form and then you experience this kind of a feeling and a perception as soon as you, you witness something there's a kind of sense of it creating an impression, creates some kind of impression. And there's a sense of the meaning of a thing, which is a mental or emotional, you might say, sense of recognition of something because it's like something else. So it's a sort of, it reminds you of, you know, what women look like or men look like or beauty is or ugliness is. It got some kind of resonance there. And there's a feeling that comes up with that. You know, it's agreeable interesting or, or disagreeable. So you can see how it happens. And then there's this volition, this kind of impulse to push it away or get involved with it or form an opinion about it or feel embarrassed or something or the other. Something starts getting you going. And then often you get 
particular volitions about those volitions. So you feel ashamed of that particular mood, so you try and repress it or forget about it, or you or you analyse it. So you get then you get more and more volition generated around each previous volition. So you chase it, end up like a dog chasing its own tail. You know, running round and round and round, trying to wipe out the terribly guilty feeling you had about feeling angry, about feeling guilty, about feeling annoyed, about so and so and so and so and so. And it's like this cascade of impressions. So when you're, sometimes you're meditating, it can be the busiest time of your life, you know, sitting still. Because you haven't got anything to interrupt. Sankara is just cascading away upon themselves. Normally they, they bounce off of, off of new input. You know, somebody walks in or something happens and you get something else to get, you know, going on. When you meditate and you close down the senses, then all they've got to work upon are themselves. So you start feeling a longing to be something other than what you think you should be, you know. <laughs> See, which is quite a, quite a complex piece of stuff. You know, first we created an opinion of what we are, then an opinion about what we should be, then a longing to be what we should be, then an irritation about that longing, the desire to be free from the opinion of what I should be. And woof, rather than, well, wait a minute. And the more we do that, the more all this busy activity generates the sense of a, a solid self, isn't it? I get really busy there in my mind. You know? And I've got all this stuff going on for me, and you know, I've got all these hindrances and problems and <coughs> sessions and really dense and it's a it's, it's so you get a huge build up so sankharas are the most difficult in some ways to get perspective on because they are so mercurial and so evocative because that's what they're about they're about movement they're about evocation they're about urgent they're about terrible they're about important. They're about enlightenment. They're about failure. They're about you know those. That's what they're about. <laughs> Things you you know you get a lot of movement going on. But the movement, you know, in the middle of that, it generates this sense of uh, a subject. You can never really find who that is, and yet you get left. With, the mind is left with this impression of being the hapless victim of these of all this mental busyness or the compulsive agent of it all I'm a compulsive agent or a, or a hapless victim of my mind yeah. and that's a sankara that's something that's formed so when the Buddha lays it out, what he doesn't ever put in there is that is there's no such thing as an aggregate called self. There's only, there's only these particular things. And that's part of it. It's just to see the madness of the mind or the compulsiveness of the mind as that. You know. So it's always that including and transcending because you realize you know, most of most of mental behavior is a kind of madness. Uh, you know, 
least mine, mine is anyway. Um, yeah. And yet, there's no point trying to, you know, get upset about that. <laughs> you know, you just include madness, include anxiety, include, and then you get bigger. And then also, once you can include it, meet it, include it, be with that, then something starts to no longer be piling on more and more of this sankharas. So there's a kind of lightning, spaciousness. So first of all, you're just able to be with that without making anything out of it. And the less you make out of it, the less input it all gets, and it sort of melts away. And there can be a sense of space without having apparently dealt with it, or figured it, or understood why it's this way, or found someone to blame for it, or cured it, but just just that, just taking it to these transcendent factors, mindfulness, energy, investigation, the sense of uplift that comes whenever you stand still with, your, with yourself. When you stop making that, so the, these are ways in which this, uh, you know, these sankharas are allayed, and uh, this is a much more helpful way to look at the results of practice than me. I am. Am I this? Am I that? The Buddha said, "This is madness." You know, this is just like. A, the dog tied to a stake, running around in circles. You know, the I am. Am I this? Am I that? Yes, I am. No, I'm not. Will I be? Won't I be? Said so this is peaceful. This is the ultimate. Is the relinquishment of all acquisitions, the stilling of all sankharas, cessation, nibbana. You know, relinquishing of acquisitions and stilling of formations. Admittedly, this is, doesn't really, it's not great packaging you know, as, a, as a presentation of this is more offering. Whereas you could have luminous bliss or you could be the enlightened, this, that, or the other. It's much more attractive than your acquisitions could be relinquished. You could cease. But, the, but actually, in practice, you know, as long as one's trying to be something or become something or not be something, we just keep generating more of this aggregate, this sankara aggregate, and firming up the belief in perceptions. And it gets very busy, and it gets very dense, and you can feel the pressure of carrying it and the pressure of trying to make it into something. May my perceptions be this, may my feelings be that, may my mental formations be like this. The point of the the practice is to really understand these aggregates for what they are, as particular pieces of software, you might say. And then to include that, meet that, not be moved by it. And that's a, you know, it's a small way to say it. Of course, it's, you know, meeting these things is not that easy. 
you know, because some of them are so extremely powerful that you, you just get blown away by it. So you say, well, just meet the ones you can, first of all. You have to pick and choose. Some things are just too overpowering to meet right now. You know, you've got a big, big, uh, you know, resentment or something. You just can't do the forgiving yet. you like to. No, you should, but it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> it's still too much, you know, immediate defense or fear or panic or, or rage or reg- something like that going. Well, they just back off that one. Let's deal with something else. So you just build up these enlightenment factors where you can build them up. You know. And uh, then you start to see, well, how can you... Then you find through that, you, you begin to recognize you've got some choices. And the spaciousness, which you have some choices over what particular elements come into your mind, what particular moods and feelings come into your mind. That's an important aspect of transcendence. The space that you've, you've developed or has, has been generated through working with what you can is the essential quality that enables you to, to then be able to tackle the bits that are still got some juice in them. Because unless you have that sense of the space, the release, the ending of suffering, the ending of formations in certain topics, you know, then you don't really have the resources to deal with more, more embedded stuff. So there's a graduated path with that. And it's kind of you to know for yourself, really, where, what you need to work with, what you can. And probably the, almost the one that's always relevant, as a, as a, both as an, as a, as a, um, you know, as an access point and as a final point, is the sense of I am. You know, that's always a relevant piece, because this, in fact, is the is the piece at the beginning and the ending of this problem, this whole why the world, the real world, is really my world. And the whole problem or the whole issue is, is just about this tendency of taking the world in, taking data in and becoming them and identifying with them. That's the beginning of all of it, isn't it? And surely the relief from it is not through disappearing into some vacuum, but actually being in this world and yet not taking it in as a reflex, as a compulsion. You know, so it's what's often said about enlightened beings is with earth but not of earth, with fire but not in fire, with different levels of consciousness but not in any of them. Can't find this person. You know, there's all these kundas are operating and yet they're not in it, you know. They're not taking it in. It's trackless. So, you know, this is why we develop things like renunciation, just to recognize you can see the pleasure, see the happiness that's involved in that. Yeah, I know it, I've done that, I've been that. You can also, you know, step out of it. A choice, we can make a choice. 
So we make that's very important, isn't it? What we identify with in our behaviours, in our acquisitions, in our property, saying, "Well, I can put that aside." In our feelings, I don't have to have that particular passion and surge of feeling. I can be other than that. Hmm? We can experience a sense of that's that's I don't agree with that. That's a disagreeable. I don't like the look of that, and yet I can be with that. I don't have to get snarling and snapping about it. That's disagreeable perceptions. We can see, you know, see things going on around us that we don't feel, we don't agree with, but we don't have to feel, you know, enmeshed by. So that sense of, you know, there's a problem rather than I'm. It's mine. There's a passion. There's a pleasure, but it's not mine. It's there, but it's not mine. So you see how that's kind of sense of the identification with what's going on. So when we meditate, this is absolutely absolutely important, even though it sounds a bit kind of artificial, that the pass mark of mindfulness again is with that stilling of that that sankara that that acti- that gets us going, there's a stilling of the experience of identification. So the identification is always about getting going on something, getting irate, getting confused, getting rattled, getting passioned. So with the, when there's mindfulness, when it's strong, and there's the stilling of that, then there's the ending of the identification with it. So this is kind of like our basic thing when we meditate what meditation is, is that process of being in the body without identifying with it, without getting going about it, without getting going about feelings, without getting going about thoughts, without getting going about moods. Mm-hmm. And we're choosing particular ways to do that, to develop that, that mindfulness. So it's the, this is a you know, practice, isn't it? How you really can meet, you know, the, the mind stuff. Get the sense of space, which includes it and transcends it. If you don't include it, then you just, what you tend to do is then just have an opinion about it. Like, if I don't, if I haven't transcended passion, then I disapprove of passion or I repress it, or I blame it, or I get righteous about it. But when I actually know passion, feel passion, know the kind of happiness it promises, know how intoxicating it is, and yes, I know all that. I know, and it also I know it does provide some kind of happiness. But, you know, then one has seen it, seen through it, transcended it which is different from, from, you don't disapprove of it, you just know the limitations of it. And so, because you put this sense of space opens up. This is what renunciation is about. It's noticing, you know, going through my kuti, all these books, various books I have, and recognizing, you know, I've got about, I don't know, 20, 30 books. Actually, I don't read books, do I? You know, I've always read books. I started reading books when I was about 
four or five, started, you know, really obsessed with reading. And so I always just have books. Books are great. I look at books. I, then I realized after a while, I, I read, you know, after several years of meditation, I started to read a lot of books I wasn't interested in. You know, I used to really read a huge amount of literature. No, no, I don't need any more novels because I'm already in one. You know, <laughs> this one, this one requires full attention already. You know, so I don't know oh, bother with that. Just didn't seem why take on another one. You know, um, and then after I began to read, I realised I only really read reading the beginnings and then I'd read synopsis. It's very, I'd very rarely get through a whole book. After I found I just read titles. I just love the titles, you know, the covers. <laughs> They're really great if you see the titles and the covers. The, the inside is just white pages with black squiggles on it. It's a hell of a lot of work getting through them to read these things. The eyes ache. And you get this kind of little burst as you're reading of intellectual excitement, oh, clarity, and then you put it down, there's this kind of buzz, and you sit back. And then... <laughs> so there's a certain amount that, that is useful. I, and I haven't, it's not a disapprove it, I, and I do read occasionally, sometimes, but it's just I can't really get the same sort of passion doesn't occur. Because that particular piece where you, you get the feeling of this burst of clarity and, and this is it, got it all sorted out, and then it gradually fades. I've sort of done this one. I've had it all figured out 20 times, 30 times, 100 times. And still, <laughs> you know, that, that experience... The clarity, the experience of clarity is not so impressive. <coughs> so when you meet people who've got it all sorted out, how irritating they are. <laughs> got it intellectually all laid out, totally clear. Think, but, 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 you know, and it says, well, this is because of this, that, and the other, these formations are pretty... Oh, I just feel stupid all the time. This guy's so smart. You think... No, he's not smart, he's just conceited, that's all. <laughs> you know, it's like you've got it all up here, but still there's the basic, you know, so often people up in their heads don't can't actually meet real people and open up to them. They've just got an immediate set of, of ideas living through their heads alone because of the intoxication with that sort of happiness of, of clarity. You can be emotionally not very sensitive or compassionate or gentle or humorous. Take your mind seriously. Take your thoughts seriously. So little bits, you know, you recognize that really it's not about these bursts of happiness and inspiration and either on a kind of sensual level, intellectual level, meditative level, but actually about the, the, the quelling of formations, the sense of what's called subtle, difficult to see, because it's not a hit, it's not an acquisition, it's the relinquishment of acquisitions, the stilling of formations. Mm. 
It's not a sense of having been something and got somewhere. It's the relinquishment of that sense of being anything. We know what it is to be something. We've been so many things. We've been up and down and happy and sad and winning and losing and succeeding and failing. We've been it. Enough. Get over it, you know. (laughs) And it's possible. And it's a possible thing. And it's a bit at a time. It's not like you get the technique and boing, you're out, you know. It It means there's a little bit right now of program that you start to, okay, this is the piece. Mm. Can I meet this without, you know, reacting? Can I get strong enough to meet it? And then just, then waiting at that place of meeting for the qualities of mindfulness, the enlightenment factors, the strength and around that, then they they will do the work. There's no point me deciding how long it's going to take or how long I've been with this particular thought and I should have got through it by now. The fact is the enlightenment factors haven't strengthened enough to do it yet. So there's no self even in terms of the meditation practice. It's, it's purely up to these path factors to do it. All I can do is know that transcendence is a basic possibility, a basic thing that human beings do. We do get bigger. We can get not to lose faith in that, not to give up on that. I know that. I know that... Um, you know, I can direct my mind towards skillful and unskillful things. I know I have some choice in that. I know I can establish mindfulness and I can not establish it. And then from there, it's really, well, let's see. Let's bear with this. Let's witness this. Let's let this process happen. A lot of it is just that the Sustain, you're taking the time. You know, why we do retreats, it's not, you know, it means like taking three months or so. Or as long as it takes to work with one particular piece of behavior that, you know, we should have got over by now and it, but we haven't. And then, I think, but there is a great result from that. You know, which you can sense any time. It's always there whenever there's any moment of detachment or letting go, you, you get a sense of that, of the feeling bigger, looser, spacious, restful, relaxed. That's the flavor of Nibbana. Anyone?